Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to another bonus episode here celebrating the second anniversary of the podcast. That's right. It was two years ago this week that we launched this thing. And Man, has it ever been a fun journey? And of course, you guys have made it the best. And uh, that's sort of the goal, right? We want to help you lead like never before. So we are answering your questions for an entire week with shorter episodes. And that's what I'm doing uh, today. So if you're listening to this, the day of release, it is Friday, September the 9th, which means the Orange Tour is kicked off. So if you're anywhere near Atlanta, I look forward to connecting with you. Uh, this year on the Orange Tour, I'm going to be doing some leader lunches. So if you're a senior leader, I would love to have lunch with you uh, at in, in the cities I'm at and uh, would love to see you if you're in the Atlanta area today. We're at Woodstock City Church and uh, the Orange Tour will reach out to about, I think it's about 15,000 leaders this fall. So it's just incredible. I'll be in 11 cities and you can see the whole list of places we're going to at orangetour.org. So if you're in Atlanta, hey, come say hi today. All right. So what we're doing in these episodes is we are just answering your questions and you have submitted lots of questions, more than I'm going to be able to get to in an entire week of like answering your questions. But uh, hey, we'll do this from time to time. So we're going to start today with Adam Colston. Adam, thanks for your question. Hey, Carrie, I really appreciate what you're doing and what you got going on, man. I'm a church planner uh, here in the South down in Georgia. And so uh, I just thought it'd be cool. I don't know if you've done this or not, but if you really broke down membership, if your church has membership, uh, some pros and cons of those that do and don't, and uh, how that looks for the future. I see a change in that. I know there's some large ones that don't do membership, and there's some large ones that do. And just kind of, man, if you could destroy that topic for us, that would be awesome. Uh, If you have done so, and uh, you could email me a link, that would be absolutely awesome. So look, brother, I love you. I can't wait to party with you in heaven, and hopefully I'll meet you before then. So have a good day, and thanks for what you do. Hey, man, that's so cool. Thanks, Adam. You know what? A party in heaven uh, sounds like a lot of fun, especially on bad days. It sounds like a a really good option. (laughs) But uh, yeah, you know what? It's true. The older I get, the more I look forward to to heaven and to eternity and the whole deal. So anyway, I really appreciate the encouragement. Yeah, you know, church membership, I think it's a dying concept. So we had membership in my first 12 years of leadership when I was part of a mainline church, and uh, I found it didn't work particularly well. And so when I started a new church again, almost nine years ago, Connexus Church, uh, we actually decided to start it without membership. You cannot actually join our church. In fact, I'm not even a member. Well, technically, there are a few members. There's four or five. We had to have it like just legally, constitutionally for the government, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so if you're an elder, you're a member of our church. But for the rest, you you can't join it. And then when you're not an uh, an elder, you're not a member. So I've never been a member of our church, but I'm heavily invested. And you know, so so why did I do that? Let me let me tell you why we did that. And I'm not telling you you should get rid of membership, but I know a lot of churches are. And I think we were. I don't know that we were the first, but like. Was, we were kind of out on an edge when we did that almost nine years ago. So let me tell you what frustrated me with membership. Well, first of all, I found that in a growing church, 
the people who get involved, the people who jump on board, the people who start serving, giving, inviting their friends get shocked when they discover that they're not members of the church. It's like, well, I didn't know there was a membership thing. Like, how can I not be a member? And we would have membership classes and announce it and everything, but still people missed it. It's like, hey, I'm here. I'm involved. What do you mean I don't belong? Then there was another thing, and that is that people who had fallen inactive or people who didn't attend very much, they often were members. And so when it came to voting time, it was always really awkward because the people who were not really engaged heavily in the ministry got a vote and the people who were super engaged in the ministry didn't. And I just thought that was wrong. I mean, I I know that's not how it was supposed to be set up at the very beginning, but I mean, times change and the governance system didn't. So when we started over again at Conexus, I thought, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. So we abolished membership. In fact, we say it this way, you can't join our church. You can only get involved. I still love that nine years later. Can't join us. You can only get involved. So get involved. And, you know, it's surprising how infrequently people ask to join the church. Now, the other thing I noticed about membership that used to make me crazy is this idea that you had to go to the congregation to get approval for things. So in the early days, we did, but I soon figured out, man, if this thing is going to grow and if we're going to do what we need to do, and we were a very fast-growing church for years when I was part of a mainline church and we had membership, it's like it's, it's a very inefficient form of government where every time, you know, you want to buy a Kleenex box or you got to change the carpet or something like that, you have to put it to a vote. So I very quickly discovered what the minimum, you know, sort of vote had to be. And when you really look at your constitution, you discover... Well, basically, if you're doing a major capital purchase or if there's like a significant congregational event. So I immediately restricted congregational meetings to just those things we absolutely constitutionally had to do. Like that was it. And so, you know, once a year we'd have an annual meeting. And again, that was awkward. And I mean, you know, you think about it in the early days, we had a really small budget. I mean, it was, I don't know, 40, 50, $60,000 adding all three churches where I served together. But, you know, now we're, we're a $1.9 million church uh, at Conexus Church where I am. I'll be honest with you, like I look at the budget and there are parts of it I don't fully understand. So why would you bring that to a congregation to get approval when, you know, we can't even get our heads around it? So fortunately for us, we have great elders. They look at it. We have an independent third party audit. Uh, I mean, (laughs) passes squeaky clean all the time. So I think, Adam, there's, there's two things. Number one, the speed of decision making needs to be in a place where you just can't go to the elder board. You can't go to the congregation every time you need to make a decision. And that means trust needs to be high. So you have to make sure as a leader, you never abuse that trust and you want to make sure that your whole church is aligned. But you know, if you're going to the congregation every time you need to do something, well, you're not going to change change a lot, plain and simple. And then the second thing is uh, the complexity of decision making gets greater and greater. So not only is it really beyond the congregation to take a look at what's going on, eventually it becomes bigger than your elder board can handle on a day-to-day basis. So take this out of the church setting. I have sat for a couple of years on a, a, a food bank board of directors. And it's a good food bank, not huge, but I mean, does a great job, serves tens of thousands of clients every uh, year. And, you know, it's maybe, oh, I don't know, a four or $500,000 venture. Again, as a board member, we don't drill down, you know, questioning every decision that the executive director makes, uh, but we do have an incredible executive director. And so that allows me as a board member to trust him. In fact, I had breakfast with him uh, earlier this week. And, 
you know, you just have to basically trust people to run the church or trust people to run the organization. If they do not do a good job or if they're hiding things, then you deal with that. And ultimately, if you have to, you fire them. So trust needs to be high. Decision making really needs to be centralized with the staff and oversight needs to go to the board and the congregation gets on board by basically you know, serving and giving and so on. And then obviously some of them, uh, they get involved at, at a, an, an area where maybe they have input in the decision-making in that area or some of them become elders, et cetera, et cetera. But that's how we've handled it. I'll tell you, our church isn't perfect, but it's never been healthier. It's never been healthier. I would not go back. You, you could not pay me enough money to go back to membership in the church. I mean, maybe there's a better model and how to do it, but that's been my experience. And people seem really happy. Like, you know, nobody's ever come up to me since we got rid of congregational meetings and said, what are we going to have a congregational meeting? I mean, let's be honest. Nobody likes them. They're terrible. So that's, that's me. Anyway, Adam, totally appreciate that. And thanks so much. Well, we're going to shift gears a little bit and get into a really sensitive subject. I got a question submitted by Mike Chaplin who asks something that if you haven't dealt with it, you probably will at some point. And I wanted to feature it because it's really, really tricky. Okay, Mike, give us your question. Hi, Carrie. My name is Mike Chaplin, and I'm a campus pastor at Mosaic Lincoln in Lincoln, Nebraska. We are dealing with something that I was hoping maybe you could point me to some resources um, or provide some information that might be of help. Uh, currently at one of our campuses that we've just uh, begun, we have a uh, person attending who um, is a registered sex offender, and um, we definitely want him to be part of our church. That's the whole reason why we exist, to is to uh, bring people uh, to know Christ, and, and we certainly want to have that open door. But at the same time, we're wondering what kind of healthy boundaries uh, do we need to put into place um, to provide not only for him to be able to understand what those boundaries are and be comfortable, but also um, to continue to provide a safe place for people to bring their families uh, to the church. Um, Lincoln is a small community and uh, people uh, hear things and know things. And so it's not like this is something that can be just kept uh, quiet. Uh, in fact, it was a member who brought it to our attention and uh, to the leadership's attention. Mike, really appreciate it. And that is a tough, tough question. I'll tell you, any leader who's dealt with that knows how difficult it is. And uh, we've actually had that situation show up more than once in my two decades of leadership. So you know, I'm not sure that there's an answer that fits all, but let me just kind of paint for people the tension that you face. And I think it's really trying to figure out how to minister to the one, but also how to minister to everyone. And the challenge with a registered sex offender, we would assume if it's an appropriate conviction that, you know, they're actually not safe. They're, they're not safe to be around. And, and yet, do they need Jesus? Absolutely they need Jesus. So, so what do you do? I think you have to figure out a way to minister to the one uh, and protect everyone. Uh, I would not basically have a registered sex offender slip under the radar screen and not tell anybody because if that person was at the risk of reoffending, and again, this will change from situation to situation. It depends how much time has gone by, how much rehabilitation has happened. But I mean, if there was any risk 
to children, any risk to any vulnerable persons or any risk to anyone, I would never really forgive myself if something happened on my watch. So you have to be very, very careful about that. So on the one hand, the offender needs ministry, but that kind of ministry could happen one-on-one. I mean, maybe you have a highly skilled group leader who's got ex- uh, you know experience in that, and you could say, hey, you could join this group, and everybody in the group knows what's going on, and you meet as a group, et cetera, et cetera. And so you could do ministry there. But to have that person sort of part of the fabric of, of everyday congregational life um, could really put everyone at risk. And if uh, families knew about it, they might not want to come. They might not want to bring their friends. They might not feel safe. So it's a very difficult situation. But I think what you want to do is you want to try to figure out how do I minister to that one person? And I think that's more offline. I think that's more offsite, particularly, you know, unless this person has like 20 years, no. Uh, recidivism, you know, there's 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 no repeat offenses. This person's rehabilitated. Well, then you might look at it differently, but still, I think you need if the if the authorities are alarmed, you should be alarmed, and you need to figure out how to do that. And you want to create a safe place for everyone. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes the things that we do in life, and if you've committed sex crimes, uh, that would make you a registered sex offender, you forfeit certain freedom in the process. And one of those freedom pieces might be, you know, the freedom to assemble as you want. I know we've had that situation, not with a registered sex offender, but even with something as as simple, but as tragic as custody disputes, where uh, one person is not allowed to be on the premises when the other person is there. And you got to figure that out. Like if you're in that level of conflict in your marriage and there's a restraining order against somebody, well, then that person has committed a crime that is significant enough that they're not going to be able to assemble publicly and freely like somebody who hasn't committed those kinds of offenses would be. So that's where I would land on that. I really appreciate your heart for the offender. I really appreciate your heart for the wider church. And I think you got to figure out a way to minister offline uh, while keeping everything otherwise online. Okay. Thanks so much, Mike. Really appreciate that. Now, we're going to go to a husband and wife duo who's got questions that they submitted separately. So we're going to hear from Zachary Verbracken, who I happen to know, and then his wife, Rachel Verbracken. And uh, so let's start with Zachary's question. We talk a lot about the skills required in young leaders that are making an impact today in the church world. Um, what about character qualities? What are some character qualities that might not be as easy to diagnose that are necessary to make an impact uh, in the church world today? Hey, Zach, really appreciate the question. And I get asked all the time about how I would advise young leaders. So I don't know that this list I'm going to give you is absolutely cast in cement, but these are some things that are very top of mind to me anytime I'm working with younger leaders. And I love working with younger leaders. And in fact, a lot of you who listen to the podcast, I know are younger leaders. So here's what I would say. Um, First of all, start with character, just with character. When I was younger, I always thought competency determined your capacity. I don't believe that anymore. I think character determines your capacity, not competency. And the reason is uh, you can always get better at stuff. You can take a course, you can, you know, read a book, you can go to a conference, you can get mentored, etc. You're, you know, if you're half driven, you're just going to get more and more competent. But ultimately, it's not your competency that's going to be the lid on your leadership. It's your character because we all know people 
who were highly competent at what they did, but because their character had a defect, they ended up, you know, having an affair or taking money that didn't belong to them or just being so difficult that nobody wanted to work with them. And when you think about that, it's not their competency that determined their capacity. It was their character. So what I would say is I want to find somebody who's working twice as hard on their character as they are on their competency, because I think that's a really, really good place to be. I try to work harder on my character than I do on my competency. And that's much more difficult to do because if you're a driven person, you're just always going to work hard on your competency, right? So it's not that I don't want a young leader to be competent. I want them to be highly competent, but I want them to be even more passionate about their character. So, uh, that's what I'm, I'm looking for, for qualities and characteristics. A couple of others, uh, I would say uh, self-awareness, self-awareness. Uh, that is the key to emotional intelligence. And just somebody who kind of goes, okay, I know that I was probably difficult in that meeting or I'm open to the feedback you're giving me. I mean, one of the challenges, and it's been well-written about in, you know, is that millennials were overaffirmed by their parents and having raised a couple of millennials, I'll tell you, it's, it's a tough balance. I mean, you want your kids to really feel good about themselves. On the other hand, life isn't fair. It's tough. And sometimes, you know what, it's your fault and you messed up and not everybody got that message. And so what I would say is, you know, are you open or are you defensive? When somebody gives you feedback, do you receive that as a gift? Or are you immediately defensive and you've got all these reasons about why that's not fair and, you know, you're mad? Hey, we all have that reaction. I mean, when people still give me feedback, I, I want to get defensive, but I've just realized, hey, I can't do that. I, I, it's just, it's not helping anybody. It's not helping the person giving me feedback. It's not helping me. And so I really want that level of self-awareness to be high that, you know, and self-awareness is simply understanding, having a realistic assessment of your impact on other people. Uh, it's having an awareness of your real gifts, but also your lack of gifting in certain areas and the humility to really work with a team and not think it all revolves around you. And self-aware people, emotionally intelligent people are always going to do better in my book. So uh, the good news is that emotional intelligence can be learned. Go read Daniel Goleman's classic text that sort of started that whole debate 20 years ago about emotional intelligence. It's just called Emotional Intelligence. Read that. Fantastic book. Also looking, now those are some character, you know, personal attributes, also looking for a self-starter. I don't want somebody who's sitting there going, well, I'm waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. If you can't see what needs to be done, there's a problem. Um, you're not going to do very well on my team. I need somebody who's a self-starter, somebody who takes initiative within the bounds of their job. But it's like, okay, what's next? What's up? What can I do? I'm looking for somebody who's a self-starter. If you're just staring at the clock, waiting for four o'clock to come around and saying, well, nobody gave me anything to do, uh, that, that's a challenge. Uh, also, just gratitude and teachability. I know teachability is part of self-awareness as well. Um, but, but teachability, it's just, are you open? Are you, are you listening? Do you want to learn? Uh, and it's not that the people around you know everything, but you know, the person who is the know-it-all uh, as a young leader really tends not to do very well. And so I would think teachability and just a heart of gratitude, somebody who's grateful. Uh, gratitude is kind of the opposite of entitlement. And, you know, if somebody feels, well, you're my boss, so you owe me this, or I deserve a better wage, or I deserve this, or I deserve that. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I even remind myself regularly, guess what I deserve? 
nothing. Nothing. I don't deserve anything. Uh, God has been very gracious to my life. People have been very, very kind. I mean, you know, I, I don't even deserve to have a podcast like this. I don't deserve to have listeners. I don't, I don't deserve any of it. None of it. And when I start to think that I deserve it, there's a problem. That's where arrogance sets in. That's where entitlement sets in. I don't deserve a wife, the quality of which I have. I don't deserve my kids. I don't deserve my church. I don't deserve my team, you know. And so that will always help me see it as a gift. It's a, it's a gift. And oh, wow, how do I steward this gift? And how do I help you? So I'm looking for that in young leaders as well. Well, we're going to switch gears and now hear from Zach's wife, Rachel. Rachel, thanks so much. Uh, let's hear your question. Hi, Carrie. It's Rachel Verbracken in Kansas City. Um, I just had a question for you about uh, the heart behind your investment in young leaders. I know you invest a lot in young leaders. It's very important to you. And a lot of young leaders in turn follow you and look to you for practicality and advice. Just wondering um, how you got started in that and, and where your passion for that comes from. Thanks so much. Rachel, you and Zach are on a very similar paths, which is a good thing because you're married. So that, that's good. So you're asking, you know, I invest in a lot of young leaders. Where did that come from? You know, it's interesting. I mean, we all start out as young leaders, right? And I had people who invested in me. I, I had a guy in his 50s who came alongside me, leaders in their 40s who came alongside me, and they, they recognized a guy who's trying to figure it out and getting it wrong as often as he got it right. And they just said, hey, can I speak into your life? And I mean, I was so grateful for that. And then and then something happened about a decade ago where, you know, I was in my 30s or even right up to about 40, where people kept saying, man, you're such a great young leader. And I kept thinking, I'm actually not that young. Now, some people say I look younger than I actually am. I'm 51. But, you know, it's like, I'm really not that young. And then, and then guess what happens in your 40s? People stop calling you a young leader. So, so it's like, yeah. Uh, and, and frankly, when you're 45, you're not a young leader. When you're 51, like I am, you're not a young leader. And if people are like, man, you've got potential. Well, hey, that, that, that's a challenge. So when I was sort of in that shift, I just, I just started thinking more and more. And this is maybe as my kids got into their teen years as well. You know, there comes a point where you really need to hand things off to the next generation, and it's not really about you. I think as I grew in hopefully emotional, spiritual maturity, I began to realize, man, it's not about what I do, but it's about what God does through other people, and that maybe my greatest contribution in life can be in equipping others to do things. And so it was, it was kind of a mind shift probably a decade ago, thereabouts, that I don't know where it came from. It just was to me a part of getting older. And then another really cool thing happened to me in my mid 40s. I don't know whether it happens automatically or or whether, you know, it happens to everybody, but I found like trying to trace out wisdom in my 30s, it was like trying to, you know, run a race in a fog. You just kept running into trees and stumbling over rocks and I didn't have a very good habit of pattern recognition and then I hit my mid 40s about 5 or 6 years ago and all of a sudden like stuff that used to take me forever to figure out just got faster and I began to see the patterns and I could, you know, spot issues. So Les McEwen is coming up on the podcast this fall. By the way, you want to subscribe, you don't want to miss it. And he, at even a younger age, 
said he began to notice business patterns. And all of a sudden, he's just like, boom, 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 boom. This is what happens in your business. You're in early struggle. You're in white water. You'll hear about all that stuff. And I'm like, wow. When he described that to me, uh, both in this interview I did with him and when I read his book, Predictable Success, I'm like, it's like you were in every single meeting I've ever been in as a leader for the last 20 years. And you just named it. Well, for whatever reason, when I was in my mid-40s, I just started to see that stuff. And I thought, well, maybe this is something I could use to build back into the next generation. I started writing books and started writing my blog four years ago and then launched this podcast two years ago as a way of giving back, really. So uh, I don't know. The heart probably came from God. And some of the stuff I share is good. Some of it's like, eh, eh, you know. I'm still learning too. So anyway, that's where it came from. And for whatever reason, God God has given me a younger audience. You can want to build in to the next generation, but the next generation has to want to be built into. And we found at Connexus Church, man, we, you know, our biggest growth area tends to be young adults and young families. And for whatever reason, they want to be in group with me. They want to hang out with me. They want to, they want to learn. They want to come over to my come over to my house. Uh, I mean, I think that's great. So I love it. And, and I love the opportunity uh, to build into them. And frankly, they energize me. Okay, there, there's one more aspect to this because we're just talking, right, on these podcasts. And that is, uh, you know, like I said, I'm 51 this year, but a lot of my friends, they don't like millennials. They, they just don't. And I talk to business leaders and they're like, well, they can't spell and, you know, they feel entitled. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe I just won the lottery when it comes to younger leaders. But I don't find that to be universally true. Do you know? I love working with younger leaders. They energize me. They excite me. I challenge them. They respond. Like, I think when you get to this stage of life, some of that honestly is your attitude. And if you're going around treating people like, you know, oh, you're entitled or, or you know, I don't respect you. Well, they're probably not going to respect you back. But I have an immense respect for young leaders. An immense admiration for them. And I love the idealism of young leaders. I mean, I remember how idealistic I was in my 20s. Now at this stage in life, I still consider myself highly idealistic. It's shifted a little bit. The idealism has shifted a little bit, but like, I still want to have hope as, as like my mantra. I want to hope, I want to believe, I want to get up excited every day. And I find a, young lead, a lot of young leaders are just naturally there. So I think there's some, some symmetry there. All right, so we are actually going to flip back to another question that Zach left. I know we got a lot of questions, but he is the only one out of hundreds of voicemails that ask this question, and it's very close to my heart. So, Zach, back to you. Hey, Carrie, It's Zach Verbrecken from Kansas City. I was just wondering if you could walk us through your process of planning a sermon series from conception of the idea to the birth, as you would say. I get asked this on the blog all the time, so I really want to walk through this, and, and I get asked it in person. So uh, thanks for asking the question. Sermon series. Well, it's changed. I mean, it used to start on a Monday, and I would basically decide what I'm going to talk about and hopefully finish it by Sunday morning. If you don't finish it by Sunday morning, you get fired, right? So that's what I would do. And usually by Thursday or Friday, I had something worked out or hammered out. And then I started teaching in series, and so it took a little more advanced planning. But in the early days of series, I wasn't 100% sure what part three would be like or part four. That all changed, oh, probably a decade ago, where I started to work far in advance. And so right now, I probably have to start at the very beginning, 
15 to 20 series ideas in my Evernote. Just ideas that come to me, you know, when I'm usually not trying to work on on sermon series. And so I just keep notes. And then I bring them to the team on an annual retreat or, or one of our creative meetings. And I say, what do you think about this? And they're like, thumbs up, thumbs down. And then I start to develop main ideas for the series, usually months or sometimes even a year in advance. But a few months before the sermon is scheduled to go live, that's when I'll sit down and I'll really start to hammer it out. So this is how I start. This is not how you should start, but this is how I start. I try to distill a big idea. Now, if it's a Bible, you know, series where I'm going directly into a book or whatever, I'll start with the book. But usually what I'm trying to do is convey a theological truth or a scriptural truth. And so I'm really searching for the clarity of idea, the angle of the series. And that will sometimes take me, you know, on and off thought for a month or two to figure out, okay, what is the angle here? What is what is going to make this thing unique? So for example, the series that I'm writing right now for two, three months from now, uh, I was going to call Dating Jesus. I originally called it This Is It. Then I was going to call it Dating Jesus. My team didn't like it. So I think we're going to call it Swipe Right. And the big idea because it, it, behind that series, it took me a while to figure out, this is one that's been in the pipes for about two years, was that people can't figure out, at least in our post-Christian context, what it is to be a Christian. And so I'm going to use the marriage analogy that if you actually decide to get married, you know, and let's say the ceremony's at three o'clock on a Saturday, then, you know, if you decide you're not going to get married at three o'clock on a Saturday, that's okay. You can disappear. You can just like, whew, all right, you embarrass yourself, frustrate a lot of guests, make people very hurt, angry, disappointed, sad, upset. Um, but you're not married. You, you know, there's no consequences to that other than the social consequences. But when the ceremony starts, even if you decide 10 minutes into the ceremony, that's it, I'm done, cold feet. You, you can walk out again and, you know, f- infuriating everybody in the room. But if you decide at the half hour mark after the vows have been exchanged and these magic words have been said, then there is a moment at which if you say, oh my goodness, this was a terrible idea, you can't just walk out and have it be over. You need to go to the government and get an annulment or get a divorce. Like, like something legal has happened and it's invisible because nothing, you know, there were no trumpets or anything. There were just some words that happened. But even the government recognizes that, no, 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 something has shifted here and this is permanent. And if you want to undo it, there's a process for undoing it. Well, I think being a Christian is like that, that, that there is something that happens, whether that's a prayer, a decision, a commitment, where you pass from death to life, where you, you move from not being a Christian to being a Christian. And the way that often manifests itself is through praying. So once I settled on that big idea, I'm just sharing all that to say this, then I knew where the series was going to go. So that'll be part three of the series. Part one is dating. Some of you are just dating Jesus. Part two, some of you are living together, but you're afraid to make the commitment. Maybe you even think you're married, but you're not married. And then part three is, you know, how to actually become a Christian. Part four is there's a difference between getting married and being married, right? Oh, yeah, being married, that could be decades, hopefully, 50 years, 60 years. There's a big difference between getting married, becoming a Christian, and being a Christian. What does that mean? So there's the whole series. And once I figured that out, I've got to then digest, you know, pick scriptures, uh, and then I've got to figure out a bottom line. And then usually before the series even starts, so our programming people can get everything done, got all that done a month or two in advance. And then prior to the series starting, 
I will actually work through all the small group questions. And I write them myself still. That's what I do. And I try to imagine, okay, how does this play out in a small group? And I'll write five or six small group questions. I will actually choose not only the bottom line, that that simple single sentence that distills what I want to communicate for that week. I'll also write a moving forward part. This is a this answers the question, what do I want people to do? So there'll be a specific to do. And then there's a key scripture that we use. So all that is done uh, before we do part one of the series. And sometimes it comes very quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes, you know, I always believe ideas get better with time. And so, you know, that's why I have a year or two worth of inventory in the sermon fodder. And not all of them will make it uh, as a series, but that's what I do. And what it, what it feels like in practical terms is just short bursts. Of course, when you start months in advance, that doesn't mean you have to put in an eight-hour day. I'm not very good with eight-hour days on one subject. So I will actually just chip away at it little by little, a half hour here, 20 minutes there, an idea here, an hour there, three hours here, two hours there. And then by the time that's all done, it all cobbles together and becomes the series. It goes to the team. And then what I usually do a week or two in advance is I sit down with that whole outline that I prepared ahead of time and any notes I've kept in Evernote. And then I actually write the specific teaching points for that message. But that will usually be done, you know, worst case scenario on the Wednesday before the Sunday. But again, you know, the die has been cast. I know where that week is going. Usually it's done the week before. So that's my um, series process. And, and Louis Giglio, I heard him on a Preaching Rocket seminar say it's really like giving birth. And he's so right. There's sort of inception, then conception, right? You get the idea that it's conceived and then you have gestation, it just grows. And then there's sort of delivery, the whole deal. Yeah, I, I totally, you know, can see that. All right. So listen, that's it for this episode. We are back, believe it or not, weekend podcast for the first time. We're back tomorrow. So if you haven't subscribed, please do. We're going to talk all about how we plan for Christmas. We got a question on that. We're going to talk about A-type leaders and what happens if you're not an A-type leader. Other questions include uh, metrics and how you measure things. We got a question on millennials, and we've also got a question on volunteers. So it's going to be a great time tomorrow when we get together. We'll also have an episode Sunday. And thank you so much for listening today. Hey, fun celebrating the second anniversary with you. I hope even today's bonus episode has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.